Are you ready for an open discussion with the best of the best and the best of what's next? Welcome to the Tony D'Urso Show. Join in on a great conversation today with some of the world's great influencers as they showcase great advice and techniques that made them the game changers they are today. Now, here's Tony D'Urso. Welcome, I'm your host, Tony D'Urso, and once again, I'm pleased to have you join us. And I want to thank you for faithfully listening every week and sharing this with your friends because, as you know, we're all about helping you turn your vision into reality. And today we're chatting with someone at the top of their category, an elite entrepreneur. We're going to discuss cracking the curiosity code with Dr. Diane Hamilton. Now you're probably thinking like me, you know, so what is curiosity all about and how does that help us entrepreneurs and small business owners? And on that token, are we controlled by some sort of fate or destiny? Is there anything like that in our shows? Well, you know, I believe so, but that's outside the scope of this interview. But we're going to talk about another type of fate. F-A-T-E, which we're going to get into. And once you do, we do that, you're going to see how that all ties into your own product. <laughs> Sorry about that, editor. And once we do that, you'll see how this ties into your own productivity and that of your business. And I'm going to say this. Apparently, no one else has ever determined the factors that inhibit curiosity and you're going to see how this all boils in. Have a listen and meet Dr. Diane Hamilton. She's an award-winning speaker, nationally syndicated radio host, and a curiosity and business behavioral expert. She's a thought leader in just about all things business. And she's the author of five books, including Cracking the Curiosity Code. Let's find out some more. Hi, Diane. Welcome to the Tony D'Urso Show. So great to see you again. It's so nice to be here, Tony. Thank you. I was looking so forward to this after having you on my show. I, we get to switch seats a little bit. So this is going to be fun. I know we chatted a lot about uh, some of the things uh, that you do to be successful as a radio host. And a lot of that ties into the work I did with Curiosity. Um, so we'll see how Curiosity kind of is a spark to everything. And that's the kind of thing I, I want to address today is why it's so important. I want to learn about that, too, because when you first hear about we're going to talk about Curiosity, <laughs> it's like, well, I'm not really curious about that. So let's talk about building my business. Let's talk about growing my business. Let's talk about getting to the next level. So I ask you there at the audience, be patient, have a listen, hang tight. We're going to put this together on why cracking the curiosity code is so important. And right before we do that, Diane, let's kind of fill in your backstory a little bit and tell us how did it all start for you? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I never thought I would write about curiosity at all. I uh, had fallen into it just because of my radio show. Like you, I have uh, a business show and I interviewed, uh, you know, close to 1500 people, I think now. And as I started to interview people, I was looking at how different they were from how my students were, because I still teach for a very uh, 
quite a few universities. I teach in online courses, though, so I can do it at multiple places. And some of my students weren't as curious as uh, my my guests were on my show. So that's what led to my interest and curiosity. But to go farther back, uh, my my background was in sales uh, originally. I had sold everything from system 36s and 38 computers in the 80s to uh, I was a pharmaceutical rep forever for AstraZeneca. I think I was with that company 20 years. So I have gone on to real estate lending on all these different areas, which led to my teaching because I, one good thing about getting older is you know so much because you've done so much. And so I, I started to um, teach more. I worked as a uh, F, the MBA program chair at Forbes School of Business and worked at you know different universities, different positions, and really found that my students sometimes wanted you to give them the fish instead of teach them to fish. And then I would interview these, you know, Steve Forbes has been on my show. I've had billionaires from, you know, Ken Fisher to, you know, just name it. You know, there is a Craig behind Craigslist, you know, and all these billionaires and interesting people on my show. And I started to see, wow, these people are just super curious. And so I thought, well, I'll write a book about this because I thought it would be interesting because I've always been a curious person. I like to explore things and learn how to do things. And what I found when I wrote the book was there's a lot of research out there uh, about curiosity. There's even assessments that tell you if you have a high or a low level of curiosity. But say you have a low level, then what do you do about it, right? I mean, that that helps you to know, you know, do you want to hire somebody, you know, if they had a higher low level, but it doesn't help people build their curiosity. And to your question or your statement before about how, why would anybody want to be listening to this about curiosity? How does this tie into anything? It ties into everything from all the experts I've had in my show, like Francesca Gino from Harvard, who did a great HBR piece, The Case for Curiosity. You can find that online. It's incredible too. You just name it. Daniel Goldman's been on my show talking about emotional intelligence. And no matter who I ask, what comes first, curiosity or emotional intelligence, curiosity or creativity, curiosity or innovation, all the things that people hired me to speak, all the soft skills, all the emotional intelligence types of things that I speak about, they all agree that curiosity is the spark that ignites all the things that companies need to work on. So if you're one of the companies like what uh, Gallup has found, lose uh, $550 billion a year uh, due to low engagement. Well, curiosity is a spark that makes people interested in what they do and passionate about what they do. So you maybe have uh, employees working for you that maybe aren't who aren't really passionate about what they do. But if you can explore that curiosity and let them ask questions and maybe get themselves better aligned, then you improve engagement. You improve all these things. It leads to innovation. It leads to all the things that lead to productivity. Productivity equals money equals why you want to be listening to this. Diane, I, I don't even know where to go with this. And as I was just mentioning, I'm a little bit speechless on this. What I'd like to do is perhaps if you could take us where here you are, this young, beautiful lady, you're going off into the world. What made you go down this road to, to teach, to do a radio show, to speak, to help businesses? What was this vision behind all that? How did that spark start? 
Well, probably my curiosity is the spark to it all. But, you know, I, I think one thing tends to lead to another. Sometimes you get a lot of opportunities based on things you've done in the past. I mean, I learned, I think you learn probably the best lessons ever whenever you're in sales. I mean, sales toughens you up and you learn to ask questions. You learn empathy from asking questions. You learn performance. You learn so many things. And as I became more and more interested in developing my education. Uh, When I worked for AstraZeneca, they paid for my master's and I got another kind of degree that was kind of like a master's of um, uh, anatomy and physiology. So I took a lot of these training courses outside of business because I found a lot of things interesting. And I, I started to see that I loved education, but I didn't like going to school. I didn't like sitting in lectures. I didn't like the traditional having to park, go to class kind of teaching. And so I realized that there was something called distance ed before there was uh, online ed, because there was no online. There was only phones (laughs) in the dark ages. And so I took a course that you could kind of consider it correspondence in the day, I guess, because you would mail in your homework. And it was just the best thing in the world to me because I'd done my night. I went to Arizona State University. I'd done most of my education at night. So I would work from seven. Well, I get there about eight, I guess, eight to four. And then I go to school from seven to 10 at night. And you do that day after day for, you know, four or five years of whatever it takes to do it part time like that. It, It just gets draining. And so when this thing called distance ed became popular, I was so thrilled And I ended up um, getting my master's and going back to get my PhD so I could teach in what was now online by that time, education, because I thought this is the best thing for people ever. And actually, my first book was about online education and how to be a good online student, because uh, I really thought that this was so cutting edge, which is so funny now because everybody has to learn about all this online stuff where they really weren't that into it before COVID. They, the one thing that did come out of it positive is that people see the value of uh, different ways of people learning. And um, I, I think I've taught thousands. I don't know how many courses I've taught, but thousands, because I've worked for up to 10 universities. Sometimes uh, at one time, I'll teach classes for different universities. And that was such a fascinating uh way to learn so many different things. I mean, there's no better way to learn something than to teach it, right? So I would teach for one school, I might teach marketing for another school, I teach HR for another school, I teach leadership and, and I, all these different courses and all these different people, my job got to be just to learn things and share things. And then, so the radio show was a natural um, path after that. After I ran the MBA program at Forbes, I decided to go to the Forbes School of Business and Technology, which is part of the University of Arizona here. Um, I decided to go uh, to, to do some radio interviews because I had interviewed people like Ken Fisher uh, and just, you know, John Tamney of Forbes and all these really interesting people. And I had worked with Steve Forbes on their board of advisor groups and things. And I, I knew some really great Forbes 30 under 30s from having that experience. And so I had a couple 30 under 30s from Forbes on my show, very first show, because I, I had had them come in as speakers. 
And so, you know, you, once you get Steve Forbes on your show, people kind of take you a little more seriously. And I, I know when you're on my show, we talked about that, how you didn't know anybody. You didn't, you know, you start out and it's something that you have, it helps to know a few people. Once you get things rolling, then it just snowballs. So that's kind of the extension device story of how I got interested in this. But uh, the curiosity thing, I, when I wrote my doctoral dissertation on emotional intelligence, I wrote it, you know, the impact of uh, emotional intelligence on sales performance, because I had been in sales forever, and I found the whole thing fascinating. And I stumbled into it by the weirdest way. I mean, you'll appreciate this, Tony, I, I had this really obnoxious professor, and I had only gone, I'd had him for like a week, something, and he was horrible. And it was in this, in my doctoral program that I had to pick my topic. And he made me call him to talk about it. And the only experience I'd had with him up until this point is I had turned in a paper and I'm super hyper in case you can't tell. And I turned in this paper really fast because that's how I think I write really fast. I do better that way. And he gave me an A, but he goes, just think how much better it would be if you take your time and slow down. And he was this really slow kind of guy. So the next paper, I wrote it just as fast, but I held on to it for two weeks. And then I gave it to him. <laughs> then he goes, look at how much better that was. And, and it was great. But uh, so anyway, I'm talking to him on the phone and he says, uh, so what's your topic? And I said, I want to measure uh, sales, what it, you know, impact sales performance. And he must have heard me say, uh, something about emotional intelligence, which I'd never even heard of. And he goes, oh, emotional intelligence and sales performance. What a great idea. And I go, yeah, yeah, that's what I said. You know, <laughs> I had no idea what he was talking about. And so I looked it up and I'm like, yeah, that is a great idea. And then I promptly dropped him as a professor because when he answered the phone, he said, uh, welcome to the cave. I'm going to spit you out like jello pudding. You're going to just hate this. And he goes on and on about how awful it, he's going to make this course for me. So rather than wait to see what that was going to be like, I decided he was nuts and I dropped him, but I took another professor who I loved and I ended up really great, but I wish I could remember this guy's name because I would love to go back to him and go, you know, because of you, I've written all of these things, uh, emotional intelligence based. And, uh, my, one of my, I think my second book was, um, I wrote with my daughter and it was about, uh, all the different personality assessments, which I would have never gotten into personality assessments. It was called, it's not you, it's your personality. But I got into all of this understanding of behavior and different things. And I went down this rabbit hole because of some weirdo professor who, I don't know, maybe he was a great guy, but I didn't give him a chance. So <laughs> We're talking with Dr. Diane Hamilton about cracking the curiosity code. And you can find her at drdianehamilton.com. And I'm going to spell that out. It's D-R-D-I-A-N-E-H-A-M-I-L-T-O-N.com. drdianehamilton.com. Diane, let's get into your vision path and let's really do a deep dive into this. I understand you've done a lot of behavioral study in psychology and in the workplace. And you've kind of talked about You've kind of talked about it, but I just want to make sure I understand it very clearly. What made you go down this path on curiosity with the entrepreneur and the small business owner? And I mean, I understand the fact that a business owner, an entrepreneur, well, we're curious about something maybe at the beginning. We created a product or a service. We launch it. So, and I don't mean to sound negative, but why do we need to learn more about curiosity? Because where we've already launched what what I think we've launched because of curiosity. You understand my little conundrum there? 
I do. And I think, you know, I think there's a couple company names that come to mind when you ask that question. And how about Kodak? How about Blockbuster? Um, those are reasons why you want to continue to, to research uh, curiosity, because what I see curiosity is, is getting out of status quo thinking. And so you might have the best idea in the world. You may have Kodak film, but you may not want to do anything any other way in the future because it worked in the past. And you may not want to cannibalize old products, like by going with digital photography, which you have somebody working in your company who gives it to you on a platter. And instead you go, no, no, we don't want that because we want to keep all of this. So I, I think that you have to look at some of the companies out there who have done amazing things. I mean, I, I've always taught entrepreneurship. I still teach it at University of Advancing Technology. I've taught it at Forbes School of Business. I've taught it at all these different places. And I've had people, uh, let me think, Marty's willing. And I did a bunch of um, videos together and he's the startup entrepreneur. And you probably have seen, he's got a million Twitter followers, the nicest guy in the world. I, I used to have him come in and do all these videos for my classes. And, and so, you know, I've always dealt with entrepreneurship, but I, I think that entrepreneurs sometimes think that, you know, well, it worked. I got in, I had good timing. This is it. I'm on a roll. And you might be on a roll, but you also might be on a roll backward down the hill <laughs> if you don't continue to look at status quo. Now, let, let's look at why status quo is a problem. Okay. Um, first of all, there's a great study out there. I don't know if you've seen this. It's on YouTube, and I think it's um, it's still out there. But they, they they wanted to look at how people just go along with status quo thinking, right? So this woman, she goes to a doctor's office. It's an eye doctor, I believe. And she goes in thinking she's getting her eyes examined, but it's really a psychological study. So everybody around her are actors. They're not even you know there to get their eyes examined, and they're in on this study. So she's being filmed, and they decide they want to see how she'll go along with what other people do and without questioning things. So every minute or two, there's a bell that goes off and everybody around her stand up and then they sit down without any explanation whatsoever. And you can see her face. She just looks around and she's not sure what's going on. And so a couple of minutes later, a bell goes off. They do it again. So by the third time this bell goes off, what do you think she does? She gets up and she sits down. Up. Yeah. <laughs> and th this is called social learning, right? You do this in your work. You may not even realize it if you work for somebody else or people who work for you or well, people just, you know, stand up and sit down at work. I mean, you know, we've always done it this way. That's how we're supposed to do it. And this is a problem. And they watched her do this over and over again. And they thought, well, let's just take everybody out of the room one at a time. So she's alone and see what she'll do, right? <laughs> So they this do. is hilarious. They call them out one at a time, and eventually she's by herself. And the bell rings, and what do you think she does? She stays seated. seated no, right? she still gets. I didn't up. say that grammar grammatically correct. She stays. That's okay. Seated. <laughs> yeah, she didn't stay seated. She sat, stood up, and she sat down. And so she doesn't even need anybody there because now she's conditioned. This is what you're supposed to do. So they go, okay, well, let's add some real people to the office and see what they do when she's, if she continues to do this or what happens, right? So they add real patients who don't know about this. And when the bell rings, she stands up and sits down and the guy next to her looks at her and goes, why did you do that? She goes, I don't know. Everybody else was doing it. I thought I was supposed to do it. So what do you think he does the next time the bell rings? 
stands up. Don't tell me he gets up. Yes, oh my they all goodness. do. They all do. We do this. We do this at work. And we, it, it's, you know, when people ask me what I mean by curiosity, I mean, you can look at it as a, a growth mindset. You can look at it as wanting to question things, but it's also getting out of status quo thinking, doing things because we've always done them that way. Pardon me right there, please excuse me, but that lady was not curious. She, she, if she was curious, she would have asked the people, why are you doing that? What? She didn't say anything, right? She, right. So she wasn't curious? She wasn't. And the guy who asked her wasn't curious enough to find out why, because he went ahead, he asked why, but then he still did it anyway. So, you know, we want people to be curious. We don't want them to have aimless curiosity. We want to get in the bottom level of Candy Crush kind of curiosity, but we want them to have, you know, the desire to explore. And what we see, if you look at Francisco Gino's, uh, Francesca Gino's research from Harvard is that, you know, leaders think that they're encouraging curiosity, but if you ask the people who follow them, if it's as good as what the leaders think, it's not. And that's a real problem for uh, organizations, because if, if, there's a disconnect, you're going to still, you're going to have low engagement, low innovation, and all the things that lead to productivity. So, you know, I, I, there's a lot of great company examples out there of where they really embrace curiosity or getting out of just the same old way of doing things. I wrote about a lot of them in my book, Cracking the Curiosity Code, but I think, you know, some of them are really interesting. There's a hospital in England who was having a lot of people were dying when they were transferring them from the OR to recovery. And they just couldn't do anything to make it better. They went through all their checklists of all the things that you're supposed to do to make things better and nothing worked. So they decided, you know, a couple of the leaders one night were watching a, a Formula One race car for, for Ferrari. People were uh, putting their car together, taking it apart in seven seconds, putting it back together. You know, all the stuff they do in those race events. And they watched that and they thought, how can they be so efficient and do that so well? And we can't move a patient from here to here. So they actually hired that race car team to come back to the hospital and watch them do what they did. And they uh, they gave them suggestions based on like fresh eyes, outside perspective, and they dramatically improved their their recovery. So, you know, there's there's all these company examples. I, I often mention Ben and Jerry's as another one because, you know, you, you I don't know if you know, they have a lot of great ice cream out there, but Sometimes people get tired of a flavor and it's not as successful as it used to be. So what they do is instead of saying, oh, we were, we're defeated, this is no good, you know, and poor me, they just retire the ice cream. And they actually, if you look on their website, they have a, a, a burial site on their website for flavors that are no longer, it, you know, great. So they, they celebrate their great things that they did and they go, okay, we're putting it to bed. Let's celebrate it and move on. And that's what we wanted to do. And they do that because they're curious enough to get out of status quo and look into what people really want. Otherwise, you're going to end up like Kodak, like Blockbuster, like, you know, all of those companies who have gone before that, that don't reinvent themselves. And that's a huge reason for why you want to be curious. We see business after business over the years that used to be around, used to be a mainstay, as you mentioned, Kodak and others, and they're no longer around today because they weren't curious enough to keep going. So I get that part. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned this at the very beginning, you, you did something which apparently has not been done before. You created the first and 
the only assessment that determines all the factors that impact curiosity. And I want to hear about that. And also, it's, it's also, again, a little bit of a conundrum. What made you curious about studying curiosity? <laughs> We've talked a little bit about it, but 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 I, I still I you still like missing a little bit of a thread here. On missing. That. I love that you're curious enough to keep digging, though. I'd love that. Um, you know, I, I think that my passion for personality assessments came into play as I started to study curiosity. And the reason I really liked curiosity is I was looking to write another book. And I've always thought, I was always the kid, the why, why, why kid that you want to shut up because they're <laughs> annoying you. And I always thought, I want to find out why other people aren't that kid. And I, I, you know, some of us are. And if you look at it, at the research actually got me interested in, in this because I thought, well, if you look at age five or six, everybody's super curious, but then it tanks after we get into grade school in a certain age. So it's like creativity. If you look at Sir uh, Ken Robinson's talk, his TED Talk, or George Land's TED Talk on creativity, it, you, we, it's very similar to what we see with curiosity. We start off with these great levels, you know, and then sometimes, uh, well, Sir Ken Robinson says we're educated out of our, our um, abilities, you know, and sometimes we are, and it wasn't, to me, just because I was so interested in quantifying things, because I did all these assessments, I wanted to find the assessment that quantified this for me. And it wasn't there. And it drove me crazy because I'm like, well, how can you figure out how to move forward unless you know what's stopping you? And so I wanted to find out what was stopping us. So I actually kind of started off in a in a way that was unusual. I, I just put a thread in a LinkedIn chat. You know, I just thought, well, I'm going to ask people, what keeps you from being curious? And it kind of all started from there. And people were overwhelmingly putting down things that sounded fear-based to me. Nobody wants to look stupid. Nobody wants to look like they don't have the answers. Nobody wants to piss off somebody in the office. Nobody wants, you know, whatever it is. And I thought, huh, I want to study this and create an assessment for it because Cashton has a great assessment to tell you if you higher or low levels. And there's a lot of great assessments out there, but nothing was telling me this. So I hired a psychometric statistician, a couple of them, one from, had been from Harvard, Pepperdine, all these places, you know, they were, they couldn't figure out what I wanted them to figure out. They kept giving me that same assessment of whether you had higher or low levels. And I'm thinking, no, I don't want that. That's been invented. So I had to teach myself the, the statistics again. I hadn't taken in a while. Factor analysis wasn't exactly my passion. And I went back and I figured out factor analysis and did the research behind it. And then I created this assessment after years and years and thousands and thousands of people responding. I found out there were four factors, F-A-T-E, as you mentioned, FATE. I use the acronym to make it easier to remember, that keep people from being curious. And so this research is not just me putting a cute little quiz on my website. I did peer review research that is in a peer reviewed journal, scholarly journal and all that. And it's out there. And so I created the curiosity code index. And that index is for companies, consultants, I, I train consultants and HR professionals and all these different individuals who want to make companies be more curious by finding out what's stopping them and building an action plan to overcome those four factors. So do you want me to touch on those four factors? Absolutely. I'm I'm at the seat of my <laughs> chair. I want to learn about fate 
as well as everyone in the audience so that we can, we want to take our business to the next level. And, you know, to, to do that, you have to figure out where, where you are going. I mean, it's the old Yogi Berra thing, right? So we know we need to know where we're going to get there. And to get there, you find out what stops you. And let's start with the first factor. And the first factor is fear. Fear is such an overwhelming thing for people. And I really thought it was going to be the most, um, you know, weighted of all the factors that impact us. But it, actually, all four were pretty equal, which was really fascinating to me. And fear can be people uh, tell themselves, oh, I'm, you know, this is going to be too hard. Or the last time I asked a question, the guy's told me, you know, don't um, come to me with problems unless you have solutions. Or, you know, I had a boss who looked at me. I had a question one time. He offered, he asked me to do something. And I said, no reason I've ever had to do that in the past. So I looked at him and I said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. How do I do that? And he goes, I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, either he thinks I'm an idiot or I, he, he's pissed at somebody who not, didn't teach me the right way. Or I don't, you know, I don't know, but he, Talk about killing curiosity. There isn't anything more than somebody saying something like that to you to never make you ask another question. So that will lead to fear in a lot of people. Now, because I was old when he said it to me, I, you know, I'm like, well, that's kind of rude. You know, <laughs> I want to know what makes you think you could say that? Because I, I kind of later talked to him about it, you know, that that's not a good thing to say because it's going to make me not want to talk to you. But he ended up being much better about that kind of the things. And I think, you know, a lot of people won't do that. They're, you know, especially when I was young, I would never think to, to say, you know, that that's something I don't want you to say to me. So people shut down. They, they really don't want to have um, their, their credibility come into question to look bad for any reason. And so they will, you know, there's all these sub factors under fear. And so the assessment that I give, it's kind of like if you've taken a disc or a Myers-Briggs or something like that, it's a 10 minute kind of thing. You get the 26 page PDF. It's that it's simple, but you do get these results that what parts of fear are holding you back and how to move forward. And so that's fear. The second factor is assumptions and assumptions are really the voice in your head that tells you, well, the last time I said this, uh, I just was given more work and they didn't pay me to do it. So why would I even suggest something now? Because I'll be the head of that committee, right? Whatever it is, we have these different voices that we tell ourselves. And, and when I'm in front of an audience, sometimes I'll hold up a bottle of water and I'll say, you know, how much does this weigh? And as we're talking about assumptions and people will yell out, you know, 10 ounces, six ounces, whatever size of the glass is, you know, I'm holding. And I'll say, well, you know, it doesn't matter. What really matters is how long you hold it. Because uh, I hold it for a minute, eh, no big deal. I hold it for an hour, my arm gets tired. I hold it for a day, my arm's like paralyzed. So our assumptions, our thoughts are the same way. You know, you, you fleeting thing, eh, it doesn't really hold you back. But you hold on to it for a while, you, you know, you start not wanting to do things. And then you hold on to it for a long time, you become paralyzed. And so we really need to look at the assumptions we make because a lot of times it, it skews our perception. And that's why my, my book after the curiosity book was about perception. I wrote with my co-author, Dr. Maya Zelahich. We also created a perception power index, which measures the perception process. So all these things tie together. So I, I think that the third factor was kind of interesting to me because I really didn't expect to see a third thing that was this 
particular thing, and it was technology. Now, technology can be over or underutilization of it. And you think about it, if I threw you a calculator, Tony, and I say, you know, figure, you know, all these things out, you might be the greatest mathematician in the world. But if you don't know the math behind the calculator, we'll never find out, right? Because you have no foundation behind it. You may be okay with the technology and utilizing technology, but you wouldn't be good at creating the next technology. So there's two aspects to technology. And some people have had great experience with their uh, technology. Um, think of Steve Wozniak. I've met him and talked to him. And his book was um, I Was. If you haven't read it, I liked it. Because the first chapter, he talks about how his dad would come home from work with all the gadgets and stuff. I think he really was a rocket scientist, like something really big, whatever he did. And he had all these batteries and wires and all, you know, all the stuff that they have. And he gave them to young Waz and said, here, now let's figure out how to build stuff. Now, a lot of parents might have done that and just thrown it to the kid and say, here, go sit in the closet or whatever, play with it. Right. Uh, but instead he would say here, uh, you need a wire to attach to electricity because you need electricity to do this and to do that. So there was all this explanation behind why you needed things. And so that made him highly curious. So, you know, his technology experience was great, but a lot of that technology of how we do things um, can be generationally different, right? And so my generation wasn't super great at, at technology because I'm a boomer, but I happened to get into selling computers in the 80s. And so I'm kind of on the unique side of that. But so it, a lot of it is uh, your um, environment, which is the E of fate. So if you look at the environment, your environment is really everybody you've ever known in your life. It's Tony, because I know him now. It's my boss who told me that I was an idiot. It's my, <laughs> it's my friends. It's my parents. It's my teachers, right? So if you get into school and you have a teacher who says, you know, I got to teach to the test. I don't have time. I got 35 kids. They're all yelling at me. I don't have time to answer questions. And now we're on Zoom. And who knows if anybody's even asked questions now? I mean, it's, it's very challenging to build curiosity in 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 a you know environment that doesn't really reward it because it's there there's so many factors against it. So in Sir Ken Robinson's case when he talks about, you know, he's talking more higher level on his TEDx talk that, you know, we're teaching science and math based things and and we rewarding that in the higher ed and so we're kind of getting rid of the creativity because we're saying, "Oh, do you have an engineering degree? Oh, do you have this degree and that degree?" So it's kind of like at every level of our lives. And for George Land's TED Talk, when he talks about these two-year-olds are all creative geniuses, but by the time they're 30, none of them are. And it's like, it just tanks because of all of our life experiences. So it's really important to think about which life experiences have set you on this path. And are, did your parents say, Tony, you always have, you're forever going to be a podcast host in the future. That's your destiny. You know, I mean, you may not have wanted to do that. Right. And it, it's something that happens to a lot of people that you're going to take over the family business. You're going to be a lawyer. You're going to whatever it is. And I think a lot of us also tell ourselves that we love this job. It's because everybody told us it's great. I mean, I loved working for AstraZeneca, best company in the world, but I didn't love being a pharmaceutical rep. I don't like to drive. I don't, it's just a bad fit for me. Right. And so everybody would go, Oh, you're so lucky. What a great job. You got a company car and you have, you know, and you hear these things 
And then you think, oh, yeah, I, I should love this. What's wrong with me, right? And so that's the thing in the working world. You may have people who work for you who could be really great at something, but they've kind of talked themselves into something else. I, I interviewed uh, uh, Brigadier General uh, Olin uh, Odukovin uh, uh, about how he does with Peregrine is a company that he's the head of that uh, gives testing to higher ed people, to, uh, students to see if they've learned what they're supposed to learn in these different universities around the, the world, right? And he hires people and then he figures out what jobs they should be good at. You know, and then he creates a job around that. And I thought, well, what a great thing. I mean, a lot of companies can't afford to do that, but it really works out well for them. He sees something in them and he goes, I know this person's going to be great at something we need because they have this skill, that skill, that skill. But then he kind of rotates them around in different jobs and things and he finds the perfect fit for them. See, I love that. And that's super curious and innovative, but most people don't take the time to do that. They just hire somebody. And, you know, even when I interviewed Ken Fisher, you know, about Fisher Investments of how they interview, and he talked about how hard it is really to, to know if you're hiring the best person, because you're in a 10 seconds, you're talking about this, and then you're talking about that. It's a one hour, maybe together, you may not get somebody that's perfect, right? But if you see somebody, and you know that there's something that they have dynamic, they have something wonderful, I, I love Olin's way of making things around them based on what what you know what he sees in them. It's very unique. Absolutely astounding. So we have F is fear. We have right. the A. We're spelled. We, we're we're spelling it backwards, but it's okay. A is the assumption. E is the environment. And now for the drum roll, Diane. No, no. The, R. Hit the third one was technology. So it's F A T E. Oh. oh. I was thinking of fear. Why am I thinking fear? Well, fear is the first I'm one. I'm stuck so in fear. <laughs> <laughs> it's F-A-T-E-O. I yes. was thinking of a different acronym. That's uh, just at the very end. No, that's fine. little mind slip there. No worries. Uh-huh. No, we covered it. Technology was the kind of surprise one. So a lot of people forget that one. F-A-T-E, because we, we, we spelled it out of sequence. That's okay. So the technology, so we have to be curious about the technology, because I get the fear prevents us from being curious. I get the assumptions prevent us from being curious. I get I, I get that the environment can uh, prevent us from being curious. Well, you know, the boss thinks you're dumb and blah, 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 blah. And I'm trying to think of the, the T for technology. Now, I know how my calculator works. And, so, and for a <laughs> long time, I used to do multiplication and stuff by hand, division by hand. Mm -hmm. And it took a long time. I mean, it took decades, Diane, for me to just use the the little calculator on the computer or whatever, just because it's fast. But I still mm -hmm. know how to do it all by hand. But when it comes to technology, and, I, and I'm just kind of getting that takeaway, you could just use it because it's there, but then you're no longer curious about improving it, taking it to another level or anything, because you don't even know what it's based on, what it's foundation, what it stands on, how is it made? Right. How do you divide it? In fact, today, I don't think people know how to add, divide, subtract like like we did in the old days because the whole system's kind of changed. Yeah, it is. So, it is. so there's a point on technology, and I'm trying to just really get this in my head, where it impacts our curiosity to even think about taking that technology to a higher level. Well, it uh, you know sometimes we need to have over and under utilization days. You know, let's have a day where nobody brings their phone and we just learn the basics behind things. You know, if you 
understand the math behind the calculator, that's important to see if you're going to be the next Einstein and you're going to be the one that can create something or Edison or whoever used all this great thinking behind technology. Um, I think, though, there's a, people that know how to take technology to the next level and they, they need to have days where they really understand it well. And a lot of times you're taking training in these this technology that we've we've got at our fingertips and they just don't know what to do with it, right? And so we need to have the days that we have high-tech days that we teach them, this is the technology, this is how we can best use it to your advantage. Now, one of my first jobs was selling computers, System 36s and 38s. We trained these companies to, they were education-based um, companies, how to use like scheduling software. And, and nobody had even seen computers back then, you know, they did, <laughs> they're looking at this stuff and they'd get in class and if you lost them on day one, you 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 never got. You know, they would be afraid to ask and say, oh, uh, "You've lost me at point A. Uh, you know, you're at point D over here, right?" So you have to realize that not everybody learns at the same pace. When I teach students, we often take a, a VARC, you know, to understand if they're more of a visual or auditory. You know, different kinds of learners, and that's the same thing with technology. Not everybody learns in the same way at the same pace at the same time. So if you have a, a technology at your your fingertips that you're trying to use, you really need to work with people to make sure that they really aren't afraid to ask and learn it. I remember writing a brand publishing course for Forbes and I used um, Bruce Rogers uh, publisher parish research in that. And that was all for marketing professionals and how confusing it was for them to have all these software packages that did all these great things. You might have Adobe doing this and this doing that, and you, you, but they didn't all speak to one another and to integrate them, to get your sales message out, to get your marketing message out, to get all these things out. And everybody's trying to do things at scale and make it personal. And it was just mind blowing for these CMOs. And so when I was speaking at this Forbes event and doing this, I, I was trying to reach them and explain to them, you know, that this is overwhelming. Technology can be hard for a lot of people. And if they're all not communicating with, and nobody knows what the, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing sometimes, that's what we have to help understand in the, in the workplace. Are, am, am I lost? Did I give up on technology because nobody answered my questions? I'm afraid to raise my hand to tell them I didn't get it because I don't want to look like the idiot in the room who didn't get it. And you know, it, they, they all kind of complement each other. Does that help explain it a little better? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And that reminds me, one of my most favorite statements, which I don't I don't say anymore, but I always used to say, um, can I ask you a dumb question? I used to say that all the time. And then eventually, I don't know, maybe I stopped being so curious, but I would always say, can I ask you a dumb question? Because sometimes you don't get all the pieces and you have to kind of drill down. And then once that once that's done, then it's like, then you then it all just sinks in place, sort of like dominoes or whatever falling into place. Yeah. Diane, this is absolutely an incredible conversation. It's very fast paced. I'm still assimilating it. <laughs> There's just so much about it. And it's just such, such a simple topic, C being curious. And here you are, you teach, you speak about it, you run your organization, you train people to be curious. And the biggest takeaway I'd like for the audience, my entrepreneurs, small business owners is, is, what would you say is is a, some well first of all we want to read your book cracking the curiosity code mm -hmm. and we can get that at dr 
dianehamilton.com. I get that. And that's really important. But mm -hmm. I just want to get this in our head. If we can be more curious about what we're doing, how, and, and it, it, it's almost, it's almost overwhelming. What am I, what do, what do my customers think of me on this product? What would they think about another product? What do my prospects think about this? I mean, it's just, it's almost an overwhelm. Is there some order aside? Is the FATE an orderly progression to, for us to apply to our company? You kind of get where I'm going. How do we kind of put this together and make sense without going off in all directions at once? Well, that's a great point because I think if you take the Curiosity Code Index, which you can get at drdianehamilton.com or curiositycode.com, they'll get you to the same um, website, basically. You can take the, the assessment in just a short amount of time. It, it's complimentary. Uh, it, it's a companion, I should say, to the book. So you, you, the book explains the curiosity aspects of it. And then the Curiosity Code Index gives you that, what do I do next? It tells you, here's my my scores. This is where I came in, but here's what I need to do. I need to create kind of a personal SWOT analysis of all these different areas. And so I may be under fear. I'm good in this part of fear, but I'm bad in this part of fear. So we're going to work on the top two or three things in fear and the top two or three things in fear in assumptions and then technology and environment. And we're going to create this action plan and we're going to create measurable goals to get there. Not unlike what you would do in an engagement survey. You know, you're going to set it up on your calendar and, and we walk you through that. And so that's what I do is I train consultants and HR professionals to get certified. They get SHRM recertification credit for going through the training. And, uh, but if they don't want to go through all that and they just want to take the assessment, they can take it. It's very simple. 10 minutes on my site. There you go. So we have an orderly plan. We have an assessment. And then from there, we have an orderly plan to actually roll out to improve whatever. What It seems like this is not just for small businesses or entrepreneurs, which is kind of the focus of the show. But we could apply this to our relationships. We could apply this to life. We could apply this to many things. It's not just it's not very myopic in just one particular field. That's I really right. like that. Well, I I'm glad you do because I do too. And I think it's so important. <laughs> well, it makes two of us right here and a couple million more. Dr. Diane Hamilton, I just want to thank you so much for going over this, giving us all this information and really, really appreciate it. You've, you've opened up our, you've opened up our minds. I'm thinking, trying to think of the phrase you've kind of, we have some more, we have another scope. We have our, we're, we're oozing out of our brain on this. There's more, <laughs> there's more to it than we thought. Here we were comfortable and now we realize. I made you very uncomfortable. Yes. <laughs> it's a sink or swim because you know what? If you think everything is going great, you're not going to be curious enough to find right. out because changes happen. I mean, what, 30, 40, 50 years ago, you know, this companies would have a 10, 15, 20 year plan. Right. That's like unheard of today. Today, you things change. You can make a million dollars in minutes, in, in an hour. It's so fast with technology. Right. And so you have to really change with the times. And I think this is very important and timely topic. Once again, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Tony. I really enjoyed being on your show. It was so nice to chat with you again. Hey, thanks for hanging out with me while I featured an elite entrepreneur who took her vision to reality. That was a great mind-opening chat. Cracking the curiosity code with Dr. Diane Hamilton. My brain is still buzzing with this. We talked about so many things and in no particular order, we discussed and talked about her background in behavioral issues in business 
and what led to her interest in studying psychology-based issues in the workplace. We talked about she created the first and only assessment that determines the factors that impact curiosity. We talked about what made her curious about studying curiosity. You have to be curious about being curious. And we talked about F-A-T-E, fate, fear, assumptions, technology, environment, and how that affects our inquisitiveness. What did you get out of this? Let us know. And thanks again for spending some time with us. Let's help you move on your journey to success. Thanks. And remember, just take action. Success awaits those who persevere and remain steadfast despite the odds. Sow good seeds, do good deeds, and join me on the next episode of The Tony D'Urso Show. We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of the Tony D'Urso Show with his key influencers. Be sure to tune in again next Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel.